Hello, and welcome to the podcast of Emmanuel Assemblies of God in Knoxville, Tennessee. We're so glad you've taken the time to listen. If you're ever in our area, we invite you to join us for one of our worship services. For times and locations, please visit at EmmanuelAG.com. Today's going to be um, in contrast to last week. It's going to be very, very different. Uh, last week, I did share a lot of personal things. This week is going to be a lot of teaching. Um, I want to lay some frameworks here. Uh, if you'll go to the, the, the landing slide there, it's your verse. Um, you know, I'm going to be leading towards, and I even said we could all go get our, uh, get tattoos together. And um, I don't know theologically where you land on that, right? Yeah. But, but you know, we think about the, the verses that have meant so much to you in your life that have really just kind of been a theme, so to speak, that have carried you through some really dark seasons. Um, if you've had one of those, you know what I'm talking about. If you've had something that just really ministered to you, or usually when God's trying to tell me something, I hear it here and then there and in a song, and then my wife says it again, and then you know how it is, right? When, you, when the Lord's really trying to get something through to you, you, continually to, you continue to hear it over and over. And for me, there's some, there's some verses, there's some hallmark things that I believe have really carried me through some, through some tough times. Um, and they come out of, of the book of Romans, and more specifically out of chapter 8. And we're not going to get to the verse that I would really just say is my hallmark, um, but we're going to lay some foundations today of what Paul is talking about in this book, in the book of Romans. But think about those verses for you. Think about those passages that have helped you or maybe your family. Um, I even think about one of, you know, one of my favorite verses was what helped my mom during her two rounds of chemo, during a dark season of her life. And just how that verse was something that she clung to, that she held on to. And there's, there's passages like that that we find that really speak life and minister in a season that we're walking through. And I just want to encourage you that today as we're looking at this, open up and, and allow the Lord to maybe minister to you in the season you're in now. And as we uh, segue into your verse, I want us to look at the book of Romans and a little bit of context. So this is going to be a lot of, um, a lot of his history and theology. And I'm going to, again, I'm going somewhere with it because we're going to be in this in chapter eight for probably four weeks, maybe five. We'll see how far we can get. Uh, but I want to lay some foundations really well today. So bear with me. Are you with me today? All right. Yeah, get some more coffee. You'll be good. <laughs> So the Apostle Paul is writing to a well-established Christian community when he writes the book of Romans. They're already established. And in fact, he didn't establish this church. So this is a little unique for him in his letters. So for most of his letters, when he's writing to the church of Corinth or in Galatia or Ephesus, he's able to say a lot of things because he was there from the very beginning. He founded that church as an apostle, but the book of Romans is very unique in this way. And so he's, he's writing to a church that has already been established and is known far and wide for its faith. We see that in, in Romans 1.8. He already recognizes just the reputation they have as a body of believers. And he, he goes on to, to recognize them because it's possible that I think these are some of the folks that even Luke is referring to in Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 2 on that day of Pentecost, um, as the Holy Spirit came in such a powerful way, he refers to visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, who were present that day. And I've, I believe it's very possible that it was those folks that Luke is referring to that went back and became the founding members of this church in Rome that Paul is writing to. And so this church has been in existence a long time. 
as far as a church goes, right? As far as a, a church would be classified in his day. And so he's writing to these, this group of believers that he doesn't have a relationship with. So he's, you know, it's, he's kind of treading lightly. He's, he's not jumping straight into some correction. He's kind of building up some cases. And so we see that in his, in his writing, how it kind of curtails how his, his approach. And so understandably, Paul makes few references to himself since he didn't found this church. And he's using a scribe. I, I don't know, I don't know how, how you, um, if you use speech to text, but Paul is using a scribe, which to me, that's the, that's the old fashioned speech to text, all right? In case you're wondering. So here is Tertius. We read about him in chapter 16, verse 22. He's writing this real quick as, as Paul is dictating this letter. And Google maybe caught some of the mistakes, but Tertius didn't. And so we find a lot of these sentences are crunched together. Not uncommon to Paul anyways. I think Paul, I think his mind ran a lot faster than his hand, okay? And so anybody else suffer from that? I do. And so even my, yeah, even my speeches text can't always keep up with what I'm trying to, to think and say. But, but Paul here is dictating this letter. And it can seem a little broken, but he's conveying something that he is establishing to lead to where I want us to go in chapter 8. And as he is desiring to go there, he begins to unpack this theology about doctrine and life. And he does it specifically in that order. He talks about the things that God has desired for them to know about who Christ was and the way that he has created for us to enter into a righteousness, not our own, but how that would affect the way that we live. And this is really, really important to me to make sure that we get this right that we don't reverse those two, that we don't th you know, think that if we live right, then we can know right. But I think knowing affects the way we live. Does that make sense? If we have right thinking, we'll have right doing. And so for me, it, the order is always in, in my theology is know, be, do. I think there was even a mantra for the army. It was, it, they reversed some of those words. Isn't, you recognize, anybody recognize those three? I think they do uh, be, no, do. I think the army actually uses those three same words, but in a different order. But for theology, we must know first who God is and what he has to say about us. Because if we don't understand who he is and the way he views us, we will never understand the reason we were created. Does that make sense? We will never understand the purpose and the plan that he has for us, his affirmation that our past doesn't have to dictate our future because we begin to know and to recognize that God is the great redeemer. He is able to take things that were broken and seem almost useless and make them beautiful and useful again. That's what he does. And if we don't know that, it will affect the, the way that we become. It will affect who we are. And so I believe it's always important that we know first and then we be so that we can then do. And I think about the sidebar, if you'll throw up Genesis 3 real quick, Genesis 3 verses 4 through 5, I think about the things that, that were questioned from Adam and Eve at the very beginning. He says, but the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. Is that really what God said to you if you eat of this tree? And so verse 5, for God knows you'll go to verse five for me. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So one of the very first things that the enemy tempted us with was a knowledge, in a, to, to obtain a knowledge in a way that we were never intended to obtain it. 
So knowledge is important and what we know is important and knowing that we are made like God and even uh, discovering who he is is very, very important. But when it's not disclosed from him, we get an artificial substitute. And we find that in this pathway now, I would also say that they added into this disobedience, right? Because they were forbidden from obtaining it that way. But I think of this almost as spiritual pornography is, hey, I want to know everything about God, but I'm not gonna disclose myself. I want God to disclose himself. I want to have everything he has, but I'm not going to make myself known. And so Adam and Eve, what was the result of that? The shame, the guilt, and then the hiding, right? They couldn't help but cover themselves after they had been, been awakened to everything that there was to know, both good and evil. They were never intended to obtain it that way. They were never intended to, even if they were going to find out these things, even if it was going to be discovered in their life, they were to find that out from fellowship with God himself, not through something that they were not to partake of in this way. And so the serpent, he immediately dangles this, this carrot of knowledge in front of them. Oh, God's just trying to keep you from this. And knowledge is power. Knowledge is important. We need to grow in knowing God, but it must be a revelation of his spirit and not something that we see man-made fabricating. How, how many of you recognize that even the New Testament calls, there is a wisdom of this world, but it is, it is satanic and of the devil. And there is a wisdom of this world, but then there's a wisdom of God that speaks to things that we know not of that only the spirit can enlighten and bring awareness to. And those are the things that the Lord wants to illuminate in our lives, not to eat of this forbidden fruit of the knowledge that we could obtain. Because when we bite of the things that God has for us, the revelations, all of a sudden it unlocks who we are versus causing us to hide it away again. That is key because as soon as we begin to know God, and this is what Paul is trying to do. Like, Michael, you're really going down a long rabbit trail. I am. Because of why Paul is laying such a foundation of right knowledge with, with those in Rome is so that it unlocks right beings inside of them, that they recognize who they are in Christ so that you recognize who you are in him so that I begin to live a life full and in freedom that he intended us to, but we have to know properly. And so then we begin to know, we begin to be, and then we can do. And I, man, so many, so many circles I grew up in, especially uh, in my teenage years, it was very focused on what we did. And, and I tell you what, I feel like a lot of youth ministry in general is focused on what teenagers are doing, right? We preach culturally, we preach on don't do this, don't do that, do this. But we don't start with knowing God, finding out who he is and who he created us to be. We jump straight to the doing, and I think this is just, you see it in, you know, Christian t-shirts and posters. I mean, it's just, it's in what we, what we market to teenagers to, of, of what you should be, who, what you should do with your life, what you should not do. But that's not the way that God has designed it to work. Because when we have right thinking, there will automatically be right being and right doing. It will flow out of that life. It will flow from that. And so I want us to look how this is central to Paul's theology in the book of Romans. Having said that, it, it was justification by faith that might be one of the most important things that Paul talks about. And this would be where Luther ends up finding 95 things that he really wants to, to tell the Catholic church that he's a part of. And so he decides on that October day to nail it to the door. And justification being one of the primary things there because there was an understanding even in early Christianity that Paul is having to make sure is established and clear 
that we are justified by faith, that you today cannot earn God's love. You cannot work for God's grace. It doesn't work that way. But instead, it is still a free gift that we accept, but it has ramifications in our lives. It transforms who we are, but we cannot earn it. And so some would say that justification by faith is a central theme and others would say, no, it's, it's life in Christ. These are two of the, of the key topics that Paul talks about. It's justification by faith. It's just, or no, no, it's life in Christ. It's knowing him. It's what it means to be in him. And I would say that these aren't mutually exclusive, but they should be taken together. And so we see this, that without justification, there can be no life in Christ. This is what we see in Romans 5.18. And such life in turn confirms the reality of justification, that we have been made right before God. God's righteousness then must be reckoned with both sinner and saint. And so Paul lays this foundation as he begins to write, he begins to lay the foundation as he is writing a mostly Gentile Christian audience with some, with some Jewish Christians as well in their midst. And he's writing to them and he's leveling the playing field. And so just imagine you're, you're writing to people who already think they're superior to God's promises. Some feel like they've kind of, they've come in on the, on the coattails of someone else. And here he is, he's laying this foundation of saying, no, whether you had the law or you didn't, we all need the same grace and justification that Jesus has provided for us. And so he levels this playing field and he, he spends the first few chapters kind of escalating to where I want us to go in chapter eight. And so let's look at, a couple of these key passages that Paul really highlights. I'd like us to look at Romans 1. If you'll go there real quick, let me just jump to Romans 1, verses 14 through 17. He says, I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. Just stay there real quick. So we talk about Paul's call in this. Paul felt called to not just take the gospel to those who had already received God's promises to the Jews. But we saw that before King Agrippa, he's recounting this, this uh, appearance that he had with Jesus on that road to Damascus. And from that encounter with Jesus, he gets both a call and a commission. Assignment comes out of it that you would go and take the good news to the Gentiles, that you will be spared from the Jews who, who would try to persecute and kill him like he was doing to Christians, but that you would take the good news of what Jesus has done to all the world, to those that have not yet partaken of his promises. And so he, he's writing to the church in Rome and he's saying, hey, this, I am under obligation. I am under mandate. This is my assignment to take this to both the Greeks, to the, to the non-Jews as well as to the Jews alike, both to the wise and the foolish. And so verse 15, he says, so I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Verse 16, you guys have recognized this one. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So we, we oftentimes will quote this one right here, right? When we're feeling timid or th this is a great t-shirt verse right here for teenagers, right? I'm not ashamed. I'm going to, yeah, I'm going to, I've heard so many songs built around this, but Paul here is saying, I'm not ashamed to take what is the power for everyone to believe what has the ability to transform everyone's life. These promises aren't meant to just be contained for those who felt like it was theirs and theirs only. And heaven forbid, we begin to operate like that, even as Gentiles in this room, that we feel like, hey, this is, this is for us. Let's not really include those on the outside. Let's not include those that are hurting. Boy, that really seems messy. I don't, I don't know if I wanna get involved in that. But Paul is saying here, no, 
I'm not gonna hold back what God has entrusted to us, the good news of what Jesus has done that no man could do for himself to bring freedom and forgiveness. And he says, I will take it to the Jew first, but also to the Greek. And then in verse 17, this is where Luther would really hang his hat. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And so Paul levels the playing field here immediately, starting with chapter one. And he moves on and and talks about in chapter two, how it is the judgment that we will all fall under because God's righteous judgment is based on truth. And whether we are under the law or apart from the law, sin still leads to death. And this is something I think is really hard for us to understand all of the impact that Romans could have in our lives because we we don't follow a law to attain it. We don't believe at least in our mind that we have this written code. But I would probably argue that in your life, you try to earn God's good grace more than you realize. That you beat yourself up way more after failure than you would like to admit. You are still under law, my friends. You have not accepted God's grace fully. And I'm not shaming you. I'm saying there is area here for us to embrace it more fully, myself included. Because it is in our imperfection where God's grace really sticks. It's not in our ability to do it all right, or to realize that we have something to offer God as well. But no, it's understanding we have nothing without him. We have nothing apart from him. And so chapter two, he lays that out, that it is, it is God's righteous judgment that we will all fall under, and everyone comes short of that, as we see in, in chapter three. No one's righteous. It doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Greek. It doesn't matter if you feel like you're a Christian or a non-Christian. No one's going to measure up to a bar outside of Jesus, the Messiah. And so chapter four, he begins to elaborate, moving quickly towards chapter eight, on the man of faith, on Abraham on someone who would receive promises because of his expression of faith in God. And we receive it no differently today. And that's what Paul would say is another layer of these foundations for the church to know and to understand. I am not ashamed because the good news is for us all. I am not ashamed because the righteous will live by faith. They will not earn it. It will be something that they place in the one who has already paid the price for us all. In chapter five, peace and hope with God the Father because of the work Christ has done, we now can receive this through that faith. Because just as sin entered the world through that one man, Adam, so the second Adam would have a greater greater effect providing abundant grace and a gift of righteousness to us all. And I think, I think we're very attuned to the impact of the first Adam, aren't we? We're very aware of what Adam has done to our world. We're very aware that sickness and death and struggle and even, right, we even hear that childbearing, all this pain that we live in this world with, we're very aware of the side effects of the first Adam. But they pale in comparison to the side effects of the second Adam, of what Christ has done for us. What if we decided to be more aware as we live life in the spirit, which is where Paul is leading this, this letter to the Romans, is if look at what has been done, but look at what is so much greater. Look at the promises of God in our lives that he has unlocked. As Peter would say, that now you can partake of a divine nature because of what Jesus has done for us.
the side effects of sin pale in comparison to the side effects of salvation. It is so much greater. God wants us, and I was thinking about it this morning, so many of the assignments I've found in my life, especially, have you ever been in a, in a season where you know you're where you're supposed to be, but you're just really struggling to be there? You know what I mean? Like, I know I'm where I'm supposed to be, but man, I'm just not embracing it well. I'm just, and, and then, so you begin to question if you're really supposed to be there and everything that happens that could happen wrong plays into why you shouldn't be there. And you, but you don't feel released to get out of there because you're supposed to be there. A lot of it has to do with perspective, right? And I, as we were worshiping this morning, I was just, just kind of meditating on that. I was just talking about the assignments in, in our lives and in my life that a lot of my rhythm in it has to do with just my perspective of why I'm there, of that God has me there, of being able to say, this is, where, this is where you had me locked in, Lord. This is where you want me to be. And I have no idea why I just mentioned that. I don't even know what we were talking about that it fits. But a lot of what, a lot of the rhythms that we begin to unlock have nothing to do with if it is our assignment or if it it isn't. But once we settle into the God, this is where you've put me, I'm going to have a perspective to embrace it. And I'm going to allow your grace to work through this time in my life. This is seasons with kids. This is seasons in, in jobs. This is seasons in ministry. This is seasons in every area of our life. That perspective is so crucial. And so we see that from shifting the, this abundant grace that he's unlocked with his second Adam, the, the overshadowing, the perspective we have on salvation, if we focused on what the second Adam had done, that's where I was headed. If we focus more on what Jesus had done versus what sin has done, how much greater would it be in our lives that we would see the impact and the freedom that he designed us to walk in? And so Paul's building this case. Chapter six, so now you are dead to sin and alive to Christ. Will you throw up the verses from chapter six for me, Branson? Don't throw up. Put on the screen, please. <laughs> Verse five, it says, for we, if we have been united with him in, in a death like his, we shall also certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. And this is very much a Pauline uh, theme. You see this in his writings to the Philippians about how he is pressing on. He wants to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus has taken hold of him to somehow know the fellowship of his sufferings so that he could also know the resurrection of his new life. And so there's this theme here that if we have been united with him in his death, because how many of you know the things in our life, there's some stuff that needs to be put to death. There are certainly some things that have been awakened from the fall of the first Adam that need to be put to death. And it only happens when we identify with Christ and his death that he took in full for us that penalty. And then we can be united with him in that new life, in that life that is full. And so Romans 6, 12, it goes on as Paul's laying this groundwork. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. And then down towards the end in 22 and 23. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end is eternal life. Let me stop right there real quick. This right here is talking about sanctification. This is a mix of your being and your doing. But he says before it had to come this knowing of what Christ has done for you, that he has unlocked this ability to identify with him in his death, accepting what he did that we couldn't, and now being able to reign supreme in the life that he has resurrected for us. 
that he would carry that to the grave on our behalf so that now the things that we wage war against, we no longer have to obey those things that we used to not even have the option to see sin appeased in our life because Christ did that once for all. Now we can see that sanctification can be at work in our life. This is what God has intended, that we would be who he's called us to be and do what he's called us to do. And then finally, the verse that many of us have heard, Paul ends with in chapter six, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. So he's getting closer and closer to where I want us to land in chapter eight this morning. You guys with me? I know this is a lot of, of heavy foundation laying. Appreciate y'all sticking with me. This is totally different. For those that are first time here, just know that it's, it's usually way more practical in the, in the coming weeks. It's gonna be a lot more story as we get into chapter eight. I just wanna lay this foundation well. I know this is heavy. I know this is a lot. But in chapter seven, he finally ends on, hey, the law has authority only as long as you are alive to come under it. Think about that. So, a law will only apply to you as long as you are alive to fall underneath that law, okay? As soon as you die, guess what? Maybe there's a whole new, uh, some estate laws or some things like that that, follow, that come into play. But no longer are you falling under any laws when you are dead. Simple, simple and plain, right? And Jesus is saying the law that has brought death, the law that has pointed out our inabilities, the law that has pointed out all of that will end when we find death in the death of Christ, when we find that he has already brought freedom from this law through his death. And the law pointed out sin and shows us our need for a perfect answer to satisfy that penalty and bring freedom once and for all. But the law does not empower us to fulfill God's plan and purpose. And this is why I have such an issue with what I talked about with what we take to youth and, and we focus on that do, do, do. We put more laws on them. We put, more, we put more rules out there. We put all this when they need to find who they are in Christ. And when they find that, when they know who they are in Christ, they will become who he created them to be. If I put more rules, and I'm not saying my kids don't have rules in our house. They do, all right? But as far as their heart condition, it's not gonna be transformed by rules ever. I want them to know the why. Why do we have these rules? Why is it important? Because of who God is, because who he created them to be. That's why these exist. These are to protect you. And I hope that the why will awaken a revelation of who you are to him and who he is to you. Because for us, if I give you another set of things, of rules and regulations to follow, you will never find the, the fullness of God's plan and purpose for your life. Only the spirit will unlock that who gives life, not another set of laws. And so he ends right there in chapter seven, verse 25. I love this. If you'll throw that up there. It says, thanks be to God. And this is the ending, the thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. I don't know if you remember what Paul has just kind of bounced back and forth. I do the things I don't want to do and I don't do the things I do want to do. And he's struggling within himself, it seems almost. Of, of fulfilling what God has called him to, but yet still being locked in, in this sinful flesh. It seems like he is still kind of struggling within himself. And he says, who will set us free from this struggle? And he ends here, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. I can see myself. So then I myself serve the law of God. He can, say, he can see himself serving the law of God with my mind, but my flesh, I serve the law of sin. And so he sees this struggle and he's like, who will set us free from this? And that's where we end 
in Romans 8, where we're going to pick up for just a couple of verses this morning. Romans 8, verses 1 through 4 is going to be how far I think we'll get today. This is going to be a uh, like a James series right here, where we're going to be in it for like nine, ten weeks, aren't we, in one chapter? The book of Mark, we were in that for years. Oh, help us, Lord. Take another drink. This we're going to look at in the NIV. I told you guys that um, a lot of the uh, memorization I did with a professor of mine, uh, he, he, we memorized, and I did in the NIV with him, and, and this was one of those chapters that I memorized, um, I think when I was 14 or 15, in the NIV. So I'm going to be sticking with that because I know it so well. It says, there, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So everything that he has built up to to now has talked about how the law has brought condemnation. The law condemns. The law points out our inadequacies. The rules that you have on yourself, the laws that you break only make you aware when you are breaking them, right? And he says, but those who are in Christ Jesus, guess what? There's no more condemning. There's no more condemnation because we're identifying with him in his death. Those laws have been, have no longer have the effect that they did before on us. It doesn't mean that we're not fulfilling the law, but it means that we don't feel the burden. Instead, we have a freedom to keep the law. We have a freedom because of the spirit now that we didn't have before. And he says in verse two, he says, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. In verse three, he goes on and he says, for what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law in verse four might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. My ability to to be able to follow God isn't based on some, some laws and rules and regulations that I fall under. My ability to fulfill what God has for my life comes through the empowerment that he gives us through his spirit, that he has unlocked a newness of life. He has made a way by satisfying what sin was going to bring about, death. And he has opened up a newness that we can experience because of the resurrection we can partake in in our spirits and our souls today. And we will experience that for all eternity that even our mortal bodies will be touched by the power of that, that they themselves won't be able to contain what God has put inside of us through his spirit. But they themselves will be awakened when he comes back so that we meet him in the sky and we will have an eternal reign and rule with him, rejoicing in his kingdom forevermore. That is all a result of what he has done to obliterate the condemnation and the shame and the guilt that we have felt under the law and have now through the life of the spirit that he has unlocked. And so I look at this overview of chapter eight and where is, where is Paul headed with this? He gathers up so many various strands of thought of what he has just laid, laid down as a foundation of both justification that we can have freedom from the penalty of sin, that there is now no more condemnation. We are not to find judgment, but rather justification that we are righteous in him. 
that we can also experience sanctification and united all of these things together that we can be transformed and live this life to the full through the power of the Spirit as he brings them together through the glorification of Christ. How he would exalt him through that resurrection and and glorify him forever. This is what we partake of in him. This is what our kids right now apparently are partaking of on the stairs. So they're saying, wrap it up, preacher, wrap it up. And so this is such a beautiful thing here. I don't want us to miss this, that Romans 8, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This would be a great verse to just play over and over in your mind this week. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Am I in Christ? Yes, there is no condemnation for me because I am in Jesus. I'm not saying, and Paul talks about this, if you're misunderstanding that it gives us a license to sin, then go back and read the previous chapters. He says, just because sin abounds to show us grace doesn't mean that we keep on sinning. But no, we find freedom in what he has already completed for us. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is the gospel in just a few words. This is the good news. You are no longer condemned because you are in Christ. You will no longer be subject to a judgment that will be eternal because of the life that he brings instead that we will taste for all eternity. This is the answer to the condemnation that is spoken of. In chapter five, verse 18, it says this. I think I have it back there, Branson. If you'll throw up Romans five eighteen, it says, consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. This is what he's saying that we can taste and see and know now. This is what we weren't privy to before the work of Jesus. And he says, if you'll throw up that next, that next statement, we must be assured. This is something, I, this isn't scripture. This is just a thought. We must be assured of acceptance with God before we can grow in grace and conformity to look like him. We must know who he says we are before we can be and do who he says we are called to be and what we are called to do. Unlocking this, remember as we started our vision, I talked about how from Ephesians 1, Paul prays over the church in, in Ephesus and he says, oh, I pray that you would have the spirit of wisdom and revelation that would, that would unlock your knowledge of Jesus, that you would know him better. And here, I believe that we must have this assurance that we have with God that we are accepted before we can ever be transformed. My kids are gonna have a real hard time living in a house where they don't feel secure and safe and accepted. They're gonna have a hard time feeling that when they le- leave my home, that, that my daughter is a 10 year old, that if she didn't, doesn't feel accepted right now by her dad, she's gonna have a hard time accepting my grace when she fails. Because she's gonna see that, oh man, I'm only correcting her. I'm only pointing out what she does wrong. I'm only pointing out what she, where she hasn't measured up. I'm reminding her of the rules and the law, but never giving her my acceptance and love and grace. If I do that, I will, first of all, ruin my child, right? <laughs> she will have some serious issues later on. And I hope you'll pitch in and pay for her counseling. And, I do a ter- and I'm not a perfect parent as it is, but I recognize that while there are boundaries that I have to create for her safety and security, the best thing I can do is to remind her of her acceptance with me and her love for us. I mean, from us for her. Wow. That's the greatest thing I can do for her. 
And I display that to, to her mom and I display that to her siblings so that she can know that there is security in this house. And I, I remember uh, talking to um, a friend of mine. He had raised seven or eight kids and they were, they were all fully functioning kids, right? I mean, none of them were in jail. None of them were, you know, run, running from the law. None of them, you know, I mean, they were seven. Who does that, right? Who has that many kids and they're all contributing to society in positive ways? And I said, how in the world, how in the world did you have just such a good, a good run of luck here with all your kids? He said, for, I had 18 years to create a safe place for them to fail. I had 18 years to create a safe place so that when they didn't get it right, they felt like they could still come back and talk about it and figure it out and get back on their feet and not continue to stay down where they were. Because how many of you know the cycle of the law of failure in our life it feeds itself, doesn't it? With shame and guilt and condemnation. But if we remove that like Christ has done for us in our relationships, we release such a freedom to experience acceptance and grace and love in an unconditional way. It's powerful. And I believe that's what the Lord is wanting to unlock with us here as we go through Romans 8 these next few weeks. Bruce, would you come up? Pray some snazzy music and make my words sound better. we saw that the law, where it was powerless to accomplish what it was sent to do, and, and I won't get off on a tangent of what I believe. I don't believe Paul is referring to an Old Testament law here per se, but just a life of what nomianism, of, of living under regulations, of living outside of freedom, of feeling bound to follow something, obligated. So, I'm so glad my wife doesn't feel obligated to express her love to me. I'm so glad that she feels freedom to show it in ways that are meaningful and valuable. And I believe that when we experience that with the Lord, that we don't feel under obligation, but yet are compelled. We find that what was powerless was weakened, not because it was powerless in itself, but was weakened by a sinful nature. And we see that in our relationships and we see it in our relationship with God. But God did this by sending his son in the likeness, not in sinful flesh, but in the likeness of sinful flesh. He became that full offering. He's paid the price. And now there is good news. This is the gospel for which I am not ashamed. Our sin that was, has been bought and, con and continues to bring death, it, it has already been paid for. And there is one who was, there was only one who was able to make this appeasement for the penalty, and he has done it. So now what do we get to taste of? Freedom. Now what do we get to have? A right relationship with God. Now we can walk in the ways that he has for us. Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ, our Lord. That's what he has done. Would you pray with me? Would you bow your heads this morning? Lord, I am sure with this many folks in a room that there are people that, that struggle with accepting your full love and grace for themselves, that struggle with not continually looking to see how they measure up. And, and though, Lord, we will be able to fulfill what you have called us to do, but not from an idea of unacceptance 
and rules that we have to live up to, but from freedom and an empowerment through your spirit. And Lord, I'm just asking that this morning you would begin to release that in our lives. Would you make this revelation to us a gospel that tells us there is no more condemnation. We don't have to walk under a shroud of guilt and shame, but we can know freedom and fresh air and breathe deeper in Jesus who has done it for us. So Lord, would you touch your people this morning? If you're in this room and you'd say, Michael, I need prayer this morning. I, maybe, maybe you need to give your life to the Lord. Maybe you need to experience that righteousness that you haven't before. Or maybe you're walking through a difficult and dark time right now and you just need me to be praying for you this week. That's who I wanna know of right now. With nobody looking around, would you just slip up your hand if, if there is something I need to be lifting up with you? Yes, 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 okay, yes, amen. Lord, I just ask that you would meet your people uh, in a special way this week, Lord those that are just struggling um, with some circumstances and situations that you know of. Holy Spirit, minister your peace, your comfort, your love. We thank you, Jesus, that you are near. Thank you that you bring strength to the weary. Thank you, God, that you are the lifter of our heads. God, I pray right now that you would begin to work miracles in situations and circumstances and hearts and finances and health and in relationships. Holy Spirit, begin to do mighty things and we will be careful to give you the glory. God, you are good. And everything you do is good. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen.